0: My guest today is Professor Mark Law, who is Professor of Economics at the University of Vermont. His research focuses on the causes and consequences of product quality regulation, with specific focus on food, drug, advertising, and occupational licensing laws. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for having me, Gil. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your older papers, uh, History, Institutions, and Cities a view from the Americas. You say, every nation formally or informally defines and establishes the lines of political and fiscal authority among its national, regional, and local governments. Uh, Historically centralized governments tend to restrict the power and autonomy of provisional and local governments. Um, And you're exploiting in this paper um, sort of uh, that kind of control, what it does to organizations, cities, growth, urbanism and those types of things, right? Yes. Um yeah, intuitively, you know, I would not have thought there is a connection there, but it it's a it's a fascinating connection.
1: Yes. Well it's an interesting project uh that we uh, this is joint work with um Sooku Kim at Washington University. Right and yeah. um so in, in in the literature on urban economics right there is there's a you know there 's a big question about well, what determines uh, urban development across countries right, and what determines why some places have very large cities and a lot of very small ones and whereas whereas some other places the distribution of city sizes is somewhat more equal right um, yeah. and so economic explanations for city formation right they generally point to what are called agglomeration economies, right? This idea that when the reason that cities form is that when people are geographically proximate, that improves mm-hmm. their productivity, right? Because it allows for better matching, it allows for specialization and so on and so forth, right? So that's the usual story for why cities kind of form in, in economics, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's a good example of that is like, well, why are all, a lot of the Czech jobs all in Silicon Valley, right? well it's because of the agglomeration effects and so forth right um however it's also it's, it's interesting to observe that if you if you look across countries right the the distribution of city sizes varies a lot and it also is sort of sometimes related to whether or not um the the political systems are highly centralized or or more decentralized right and so what um my co-author and i wanted to explore was whether Sort of different patterns of federalism across different countries in the Americas, so North, uh, North America and South and Central America, whether that can go some distance towards explaining sort of distributions of cities across uh, different mm. countries. Yeah. yeah. Um, and go so, ahead. Yes. Um,
0: and so, so, so you you're finding a connection between federalism and and cities and city sizes and the distribution? Yes,
1: yes. So the idea is, is, uh, is basically, so you have some countries where for historical reasons, they're very politically centralized, right? So quite often in these, in these countries, you have um, what you call sort of, if you look at their distribution of city sizes, you, there's what's called urban primer. Primacy, right? There's one or two cities that sort of dominate the urban landscape. They account for the bulk of the population, right? And quite often they are political capitals. Okay, right. Um, right. In other countries, you have very large cities, but they don't not necessarily political capitals, right? Um, and in mm-hmm. fact, you have more a sort of more even distribution of city sizes. Okay, and then often these are more decentralized countries. Okay, um, mm-hmm. and so what we wanted to do is try to look. Sort of historically over time at different types of federalisms in different countries so some countries are actually federal in the sense that you have, you have a national government as well as sub regional governments and then you have city governments right um, whereas yes. other countries are very unitary right there's just a national government and then there are cities below it okay right. um so across these different within federalisms you have some federalisms that are highly centralizing and highly and that others that are more decentralized, right? And so we wanted to see if there was a story that could be told about how these evolving patterns of federalism affected the distribution of city sizes in uh, across Americas. So, um, so the sort of, I think the, the the sort of basic stylized facts is if you look at, you sort of estimate the distribution, um, uh, the, the distribution parameters of, for city sizes over time, what you find is that in Latin America, where, um, where where basically governments were highly centralizing. Okay, you ha- you generally have uh, very concentrated city distribution. So one or two cities that are very very large relative to everything else. Right, and those tend to be mm-hmm. political capitals. Right. Um, mm-hmm. In contrast, in North America, and specifically in, in in Canada and the United States, right, what you see is far more decentralized distributions of city sizes. Right? So there's a, city sizes are not as unequal. Okay? Um, and in fact, uh, even uh, between Canada and the United States, what you see is in the United States, city size distributions tend to be more equal than in Canada. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and what we try to do in the context is, is to try to trace sort of historically what's going on with federalism in these countries uh, to try to to, just to see if it can explain these differing patterns across countries and over time. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the story the, so- the basic story I think we have is, is in mind is as follows right so highly politically centralized countries right they are often cities where the countries where um, the capital city is the largest city right <laughs> um, and yeah. I think that tends to mean that a lot of resources get captured by these cities Probably above and beyond what would happen just as a natural result of urban agglomeration, right? So right. because bureaucracies tend to be in these cities, they become centers of, of of lobbying, right? Which in turn generates economic activity and so on and so forth, right? And so in those places, political capitals tend to be very, very, very large, right? um, <laughs>
0: And if, you, if you're centralized that way to get anything done, you have to go absolutely through.
1: right historically right yeah. when in, in a world of yeah. high transportation costs, high you know, and high um, transaction costs, right, essentially kind of uh, communication costs basically you have to be in the city, right? So if you take a country like, for instance, um, Argentina, right, where Buenos Aires is by, by far the largest place, right, and any other city is much, much, much smaller, right, right? you have this concentration of Economic and political activity in Buenos Aires and it's very striking that in historically in in, in, La, in in Argentina right although a lot of the wealth was generated out in the provinces right there were big landowners in the pampas and so on and so forth that had very productive farming farms and so forth right they all basically lived in Buenos Aires right and so it became a, sort of a, an economic center for that very reason because it was this nexus of political activity right? Um, In contrast, right, in North America, where political powers tend to be a bit more decentralized, right, especially in the United States, right, um, overwhelmingly, right, in in U.S. states, for instance, the largest city, with some exceptions, the largest city is generally not the political capital, right. Right. Um, Right. So uh, if you think about um, California, for instance, the largest cities are, you know, it's like Los Angeles and then San Francisco in terms of metropolitan areas, right, but really that's in, 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 in Sacramento, which is the political capital, is much much smaller, right?
0: Um, it's the same in, same for Illinois, New absolutely. York, and absolutely. Massachusetts,
1: right? With one or two exceptions, right? There are of course some states like uh, like Bo- uh, Boston is the capital of Massachusetts, and of course is also the largest city, right? Uh, but for, more overwhelmingly, uh, the capitals are, are are distinct from the largest cent- uh, economic center, right? Um, and I think this has to do with the fact that. U.S. states, right, um, are actually not all that powerful, right, relative to the cities within them, okay. Um, So if you, if you, the, the states were, in fact, by design were often placed in the middle of nowhere, right, if you actually want to sort of predict where the capital of a state is, you probably, the best way to do so is to choose the geographic center of the state, right, uh, you kind of look at the map, right, and you look at where all the capitals are in each state, it's usually somewhere in the middle. And by design, by design it was not supposed to be an economically important place, because I think there was a deliberate decision in the in Americas to, to keep political and economic power fairly separate. Okay. Mm. Um, This isn't so the the contrast that we that we really exploit, of course, because we have the most data on it and and we have the most information about the, the evolving natures of those federalisms is between Canada and the United States, right? Because although Canada is a fairly decentralized country, it's decentralized to provinces, but within provinces, provinces are highly centralized, right? So in in most Canadian provinces, the largest city is also a capital. Right. So Toronto is by far the largest city of in Ontario and is also the capital of Ontario. Right. Um, and it turns out that if you kind of look at the revenue raising power of cities versus the provinces, right, in the Canadian context, um, provinces have this ability to raise money that cities do not. Right. In contrast, in the United mm-hmm. States, actually, the tax base available to cities is much greater than in um, then it's available to Canadian cities, right? Uh, US cities often can, live, there's a very large market for municipal debt in the United States, right, for instance, so cities can borrow, whereas in Canada, that almost doesn't exist. By design, provinces are very powerful relative to, relative to cities, and so therefore, Canadian provinces tend to have fairly unequal city size distributions relative to US states. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And so so this is not in the paper, Mark, but I I was wondering
1: from a from a design perspective, what do you think is more efficient? Well, that's a good question. Right. I mean, I think the 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 uh, that that's, of course, you know, that is the million dollar question that we're interested in. Right. To what extent is this a drag? Right. On uh, economic activity. Right. The fact that maybe. So what you would worry about. Right. Is that because all of these political resources are flowing to these cities. They're not going to the places where actually they, economically, they make the most sense, right? So there's might be some (laughs) inefficiency associated with that. And and other um, urban economists have tried to sort of estimate this in different ways and and some, you know, and there's some evidence that there is loss. We don't directly do that ourselves, right? But there is some evidence from other studies which suggests that um, this uh, Perhaps you know this excessive centralization in a few places results in starving the hinterlands, right, of 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 economic resources. Um, <laughs> anecdotally, I can say that uh, you know, uh, in the Canadian context, I, th- I think you can you do sort of see this in 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 certain ways, right? In the Canadian context, for instance, uh, you know, I haven't grown up in in northern British Columbia, which was always complaining that all the resources went to Vancouver and Victoria and they never went up to the north where (laughs) I was growing up. But the the complaint was that, you know, because every all the, you know, when I was growing up, you know, if you were a banker in Prince George, you had to go to Vancouver, right? If you wanted to actually get a substantial loan, right? And, you know, it was too far away from them. They kind of ignored them. And so they felt that they were starved of financial capital as a result. Okay, so those would be the kind of inefficiencies that I think might manifest themselves as a result of this kind of centralization. But no, we don't directly estimate this.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking, um, and I can all the states in India, for example, uh, they they tend to be sort of uh, one extreme part of the state. (laughs) so unlike Illinois, uh, where Springfield is sort of at the center. you see these large cities where, you know, it's it's also capitals, but it's in one yes. corner of the city. And I wonder what caused that. Yes.
1: Well, I think, you know, so I, I haven't investigated the Indian context, right? You know, And I think yeah. it's ultimately, you know, you, you sort of, you know, if you really want to tease this out, you sort of have to know something about how these cities were selected, right, at the time, right? You know, I think <laughs> the, the, you know, were they, you know, so one reason, right, historically why I think that, you know, some places the the capitals are the largest because the capitals were just ma- the biggest centers were made the capitals right ex- after the fact, right? You know, right. and I don't know what the story is in 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 the Indian context, right? However, I could very well yeah. believe in the Indian case that, even conditional on that, right? Nevertheless, that there are great benefits to being close to the capital, given the nature of all the bureaucracy that arises, right? And the need to get permits, you know, I think of the License Raj, now mostly dismantled, I think, but still existing in some form, right? Um, And how it was so important to be able to be close to the capital in order to get things done. Mm -hmm. And and, and I guess,
0: um, you know, in some sense, I think you mentioned this in the paper, uh, when agriculture was dominant, um, you know cities might have been selected based on that yes. idea um so it 's not necessarily sort of geometric center from a from a transaction cost perspective, but really that is where the agriculture powerhouses were yes. so to speak and then it shifted right when technology came in, when manufacturing came in, it went to to, to completely different yes. place.
1: Well, uh, I think and that's, so that's right. What, right. I think these... that's absolutely true. I mean, you think of a much, most of, much of the United States was, was w- agriculture was originally politically important in very, in, in a lot of the United States, right? Absolutely. So it was important to yeah. put these capitals and centers where there was agriculture, right? Uh, that, that's, uh, but however, it is, yes, absolutely. With, with time, it has evolved. It has evolved differently.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's a fascinating connection. Um, obviously, it has some implications for policy uh, for countries that they really want to, you know, go back and study what might yes, be more optimal. Absolutely. I mean,
1: I think um, the, the, you know, it's. Uh, this, this i you know this is i, I find this this particular project of, I, you know i i at the time where I was working on was, was i thought it was great fun right because it was an opportunity to learn a lot about <laughs> the countries and their histories and so on and so forth it was also in in a ways the most frustrating right because there is so much mm. uh, about you know it, what, what would would you know would be nice is to have more of more randomization in a sense right that would allow us to say something cleaner <laughs> about you know what's driving what in a way right Um, And that's why ultimately I point out that, you know, you really have to have a good story about how these capitals are chosen, right, you know, if they have, if capitals just happen to be chosen in the same places where we're economically important, then it's very hard to know that if it's my story versus some other story, right, Uh, it could very well be these would have been the big cities anyway, right. So uh, that's a sense where we're we're hoping that if you could look over—that's that's 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 partly the story why we think it's important to take this temporal dimension, right? And 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 this Mm Canada-U.S. comparison that we're trying to take advantage of, right? Because there you have other changes going on that may have tipped the favor, you know, the balance one way or the other.
0: Yeah, I mean the other question is as technology changes. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, the transaction costs continue to decline. Um, It might be that, you know, if you were to start a new country (laughs) today, um, it, it, you know, uh, it's going to be distributed decision-making. And so this idea that you have, you know, sort of centralization from a decision-making perspective, that whole idea might, uh, you know, might go away. Well, it's hard to say, right?
1: I mean, until this pandemic, like right. I think most people would have said everything have been centralised, right? The, you know, one of one of the complaints uh, that is, is heard in Canada, for instance, is 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 that our cities are not large enough, right? For instance, right, uh, that that because the population is spread out, although it is fairly concentrated, right? I mean, if you look at the map of Canada and you look at densities, of course, all the density is in a handful of places, right? Uh, but But it has sometimes been argued that, in fact, it's still inefficiently not dense enough, right, Uh, that that we would benefit (laughs) from greater density because of the benefits of agglomeration, right? I think these agglomeration economies are enormous, right? Uh, That certainly is the received wisdom in in a lot of urban economics, right? Um, However... Right. right. Uh, given the pandemic, I think there has been some rethink of that, but I don't know if that's a, a one-off thing or it's going to, you know, result in fundamental changes. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. So that's a sort of a minimum efficient yes, scale question. Absolutely. Uh, and and Canada's a good example because you've yes. got so much space and, uh, and the question is, you know, again, from an efficiency perspective, well, how would that's you design right. that? You
1: know, yeah. absolutely. Right. And, I mean, I, I think the, the it's, it, you know, I, I would be willing to bet that, again, this is just me thinking off the top of my head, right? But if it weren't for certain borders that are existing, certain Canadian cities would probably be much smaller, right? You know, if mm. imagine that we didn't have a border at the 49th parallel and, you know, and that Canada and the United States were a single country, right? Uh, it raises the question of, yeah. well, would Toronto be as significant as it is, right? Or would everything have gravitated to, I don't know, Chicago and New York and so on and so forth, right? Absolutely. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah, uh, In the European context, right, you have, you know, if you you look at a lot of Europe, for instance, you have very small countries, right? And like a country like Germany has a lot of cities, but none of them are like super big, Right. And I I think that is a function of the fact that this was, Germany was once many countries, right? And it was politically fragmented, right? Uh, And so therefore Mm. in much of central Europe, right? You have a lot of cities that are kind of, you know, of moderate size, (laughs) right, in some ways, right? And had had it always been centralized, you know, then maybe the city size distribution would look very different, right? right? Right,
0: right. Yeah, I want to jump into one of your uh, so, recent papers um, of understanding the rise of regulation during so, the Progressive Era. Uh, what role for Austrian economics, you ask? So uh, you say that uh, you selectively survey the economic history literature of the rise of regulation in America during the Progressive Era with the goal of identifying how this literature is informed by Austrian yes. economic theory. Um, so... so 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 can you give a quick definition for (laughs) Austrian economic theory? Well,
1: so I I I don't pretend to be an Austrian economic theorist, um, but I I was invited to write this paper as as a for part of a symposium uh, that was being uh, that was being organized. There was uh, trying to, basically, the organizers were asking economic historians like myself who are not Austrians, right, to sort of. Think about yeah. to what extent Austrian insights might offer, you know, in in economic history, and whether economic history provides some way of testing different Austrian ideas. Right? Um, so, yeah. as I come at it, right, you know, again, I'm not an expert on Austrian economics myself, but as I come, at it, what I what I see as being the sort of the key difference between a lot of Austrian thinking and sort of mainstream economic thinking, is that. Mainstream economic thinking is mostly about equilibrium, right? It's about, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of developed off this sort of Newtonian type thinking, right? Very uh, 18th century logic, right? When think about markets in equilibrium, <laughs> right? And prices playing this role in coordinating us and bringing markets into equilibrium, okay? Um, Austrian hmm. economics in contrast is more about process, right? I think a lot of it is about how we get to equilibrium, right? Um, and there have been many different, you know, contributions that they've made on, on this on the score, right? Um, but I think so. but but I think there's so because it's about this process. There's a lot more concern about sort of dynamics, right? How do we move from one point to another, right? Um, as well as on the individual actors who move us towards equilibrium, who are the entrepreneurs, <laughs> right? Um, so I thought, you know, I would try to explore to what extent those insights can, um, are, are borne out and could be fruitful for the study of the economic history of regulation. And, and
0: so, so, so you, you talk about two things here. One is, as you mentioned, sort of the dynamics yes. of the system and dynamics of how yes. regulation evolves. In and then the one is sort of the role of entrepreneurship uh, within that within that system, how does that affect, right? So 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 what do you what, what is well, your So I have I,
1: I think that Austrian economics can tell us about, about about both of those things, right? So on the dynamic story, right? So when, when economists typically study yeah. the economics of regulation, we look at basically one regulation at a time. How does it arise? Who wins and who loses and what effect did the regulation have on the allocation of resources, right? So there tends to be mostly an emphasis on the static gains and losses of regulation, right? And, and I think that's a very fruitful form- format for thinking about why particular regulations evolve and who wins and loses and what it does, okay? But of course regulation, once it's enacted, doesn't just stay still, right? Typically, once a regulation is introduced, it basically creates new interests right that arise in order to take advantage or avoid those regulations right and these new interests in turn form a new, new nexus of inter- uh, of lobbyists essentially right who then sort of push regulation in one direction or the other right and so really regulation isn't a story of it just coming and in- staying stagnant right but instead it sort of evolves over time in this particular way okay and so one conjecture is that this dynamic approach right maybe will allow us to get a better understanding of sort of how different regulatory agencies evolved over time in the terms of what they regulate how they regulate and so forth right so if you take for instance Mm -hmm. um, the regulation of of food and drugs right so food and drug regulation begins in the late 19th century. And it's really not about drugs at all. It's about food, right? And it's about something fairly narrow. It's about basically food labeling laws, right? And that's sort of how sort of early state, pre-FDA type organizations, I guess you could call them, right? State regulators of, of food labels sort of emerged in the late 19th, early 20th century. And ultimately that's what gave rise to what we now call the FDA, right? The, which was originally in the Department of Agriculture, right? Um, pharmaceuticals was kind of a sideline, right? It wasn't, of course, there wasn't really a big pharmaceutical industry at this time, right? The FDA was, it, or its early, its predecessor was, in, was, you know, came about in about 1906, right, as a result of the 1906 Pure Food and Drugs Act. Um, and drugs was sort of added in towards the, as an extra thing, right? It sort of got thrown into the mix, right? Because there was a bit of concerns about, well, because, of, again, the concern was about labeling was that, well, if, pharmaceuticals are being sold to people, then we've got to make sure that, of course, that they also meet the same standards of accuracy and labeling, right? That's sort of how it emerged, right? Um, There was no concern about safety or efficacy initially, right? However, that came about later, right? right? Once the FDA sort of gained some authority over this, right? Then, of course, there became an interest in using it, right? To do something else, right? And so there's sort of the evolution of of, you know, now, and today we think of the Food and Drug Administration as really mostly about pharmaceuticals, right? Food is certainly part of what they do, <laughs> yeah. but the headline is always drug approval right, and so forth, right? And so, how do we get from just sort of narrowly, you know, uh, focusing on product labels to actually you know, um, the the extensive pre-market late testing and so on and so forth of pharmaceuticals that we have today, right? So uh, the hope is that this sort of Austrian story, which tells us something about the interest groups that are involved and how they come about uh, and then change the nature of regulation over time that might inform us something about the evolution of those regulations.
0: Hmm. You, you talk. Um, you have another paper. How do regulators regulate and enforce yes. the Pure Food and Drugs Act? Uh, you talk about in that paper um, sort of the signaling yes. mechanism, right? Um, certification, That's right. quality, yep. and um, you know. And so people worry about you know sometimes um, you know was it sort of put together by dominant firms yes. to take get an advantage, or did it actually add? you know, uh, social welfare
1: by, by allowing more competition and yes. more firms to come yes. into the market. Uh, so so wait, right. well, what did you find so there? What I was trying to investigate there is is that, um, so the FDA in its original form was a very pretty small agency, right? There weren't a lot of people who worked at it. It was actually at the time, it was called the Bureau of Chemistry, which was this unit within the Department of Agriculture, okay? Um, and yes. so they were tasked with trying to enforce this Pure Food and Drugs Act, okay? Um, And initially, the way they tried to do it was essentially through the court system, right? They wanted to, they sort of sample products, test them, right, and see if they were accurately labeled or not, right? And then they would try to take them to court, okay? So that was essentially the process in which they wanted to uh, sort of enforce this law, right? Through through deterrence, as it were, okay? We'll, We'll punish you if you mislabel your goods, right? Okay, pardon me? All exposed, all exposed. Ex- 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 sort of Compliance. Right? Okay. The threat of exposed punishment. The hope was that that would induce food manufacturers to be accurate. Okay. Um, however, that proved yeah. to be very, yeah. uh, very ineffective mechanism. Right, because it was actually pretty easy for these firms to evade uh, the court system. Right. The court system was slow and kind of cumbersome. Right. the The law didn't give them the ability to impose particularly Punitive fines, right? So it was even if they got punished, it was fairly Mm -hmm. nominal, right? Um, And so they quickly sought other ways of getting um, the the their their you know getting this enforcement done. And so what they basically came upon was they they basically developed them. They 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 sort of uh, were able to leverage the fact that they were experts, right, in sort of food science and food chemistry. These were the guys who were originally in the FDA, right? Um, and, And they were able to basically say, look, we can help certify your goods, essentially, right? A stamp of approval from us, right, basically is possibly a useful market signal for you. Um, and that would allow you to, you know, distinguish yourself from, so if, if it has a stamp of approval, then that means potentially you can charge a higher price for a product, right? That was, I think, probably their thinking, right? Um, and uh, and it, eventually, it'll also and, and, and so it allowed you to signal quality, right? Uh, and that, I think, facilitated the development of a lot of manufactured foods, right? There was naturally a lot of skepticism about many of these products. They were new. Think about canned goods and so on and so forth, right? Um, during this time, these were relatively unfamiliar products, right? And consumers were wary of them, right? And so having this stamp of approval from the FDA proved to be a, a fairly useful signal for a lot of food manufacturers, which I think allowed this industry to sort of take off.
0: And so, so, so what you mean by Austrian economics um, effects here is really sort of um, regulation um, evolving um, from oh, from right. I mean,
1: exactly, evolving as a result of, well, in this case, right, in the, as a result of essentially entrepreneurial activity, but not on the part of, in this case, of firms. Right? When we think of entrepreneurship, we normally think of um, owners of businesses, right, as being the, the entrepreneurs, right? And entrepreneurs in the Austrian context are basically these individuals who are able to use their very specific knowledge to find... Profit opportunities, right? They they can see that this is there's a new product that might be needed here. That there's an innovation that would allow them to reduce costs and improve quality and so forth, right? Those are the entrepreneurs, and they are these searching people, right? Who are able to identify these profit opportunities, right? Um, but the point I guess so. If I, you know if you're kind of thinking of these two articles kind of combined, right? Is is essentially uh, yeah what I identify in this this piece where I was writing for the for for this Austrian conference is that you can think of the early fda as being kind of entrepreneurs also except entrepreneurs in the bureaucracy right they're trying to make their jobs work right? <laughs> they're trying to leverage their expertise yeah. over uh food science food technology or whatever right to uh do some uh to to, to fulfill their regulatory um, ambitions right which is to improve the quality of foods and so forth right so this is a case where that sort of entrepreneurship works in, I think during this time, again, I don't want to say much out of sample, but in this particular instance, it works, I think, to, to, uh, to the social benefit because it also allows for uh, the development of new products.
0: Yeah, so, so if I understand this correctly, Mark, um, in, in some sense, the regulators moved upstream that they could provide guidance, yes. they could provide expertise, uh, yes. To the manufacturers. And rather than become a, you know, sort of uh, exposed yes. compliance managers, they could actually actually try. That's exactly that. correct. Yes. Is that, so, is that I how mean, you see it?
1: the reason I call this entrepreneurialism on their part is that there was no directive that they do this. Right. They're, they were just told enforce this law. Right. And then they had to come up with some way of doing it. <laughs> OK, um, so the the, the entrepreneurship right. is in inventing this mechanism for, for themselves, right? They, they initially tried the way that would seem obvious, right, is to sort of be a policeman about it, right? Just go over and, and you catch the bad guys, find uh, the adulterators and so forth, okay? But they just didn't find that was very effective. And so rather than continue to do that, right, they said, well, let's innovate, right? Let's, let's, let's do something useful for firms that allows us to actually enforce this law more effectively.
0: Yeah. That's a fascinating way to think about regulation. We'll take a quick break, um, Mark. When you sure. come back, we'll talk about your Absolutely. other okay. regulation. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at com. So, Mark, uh, we are back. Uh, we were talking about um, regulation um, as sort of a dynamic process of regulation, how it evolves, how entrepreneurs and market forces might shape it over time and and you have done a lot of work in this area of regulation on on many many different areas um mm-hmm. to start with uh, one of your papers so the political economy of truth in advertising right um so so truth in advertising regulation so when did it
1: when did it start it starts in the um early decades of the 20th century right so i think uh, yes uh, in the 1900s right yeah. Uh, and then it sort of goes through until about the 1940s, right? So at the state level, individual states enacted these sort of truth in advertising laws, right? Which basically gave authorities some ability to go after pe- you know, um, manufacturers or producers who sort of lied about their products in various ways. Right, right.
0: And, and, and cynically one might, so since advertising is costly Cynically, one might think that um, you know uh, big firms might have an incentive here to to do this, Uh, but you could also think about if if this is like you mentioned before, uh, provides a signal of quality to the market. It actually allows other firms to uh, to benefit from it. So, so what do you find from the data?
1: Well, so as you sort of hinted, right, we're kind of looking at two different hypotheses for why these laws arose. Right? Okay. So yeah. you know, in, in the study of regulation, typically, there's always sort of two competing hypotheses. One is what we may call a public interest story, where regulation is introduced in some ways to make markets work better, right, to improve efficiency. And there's yeah. always some sort of special interest story where, well, maybe the regulations are not being introduced to um, help markets work better, but they're being introduced to advantage one segment of the market at the, extent of, at the expense of the other. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, in the context of uh, this set of regulations, right? So, these, one story you could tell, right, is that truth and advertising laws were essentially introduced to basically make it costly for smaller firms, right, who didn't have mm-hmm. large budgets and so forth, to advertise, right? Advertising is a way of communicating information about your product, right, to 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 your customers, right? That's the point of advertising. Um, it's a way of signaling quality, right, and, uh, and communicating aspects of uh, attributes of of your product and so on and so forth. And so, it's a very useful competitive device. right? Yeah. And so, one story you could tell is that what you want is the you know large firms perhaps wanted these um, these laws in order to make it costly for their smaller competitors to uh, to advertise. Right. That's one possible story. Okay. A second possible story is that well, you know and this is actually one that I, I think we, we believe to be more consistent with the historical evidence is that the reason that these laws were sought after right, was because in an environment where there was sort of no regulation at all of advertising, okay? The credibility of advertising was sort of put into question, right? There's, this is called, they, 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 in, at the time, they, they called this the, the rotten apple hypothesis, right? For, for why they needed, uh, regulation, right? So the story was that, you know, ads were were going to be, were, you know, people could be potentially untruthful. It was very costly for people to um, ascertain whether or not all ads were, whether a particular ad was true or not,
0: right? Some, so such, what, some and, but then using sort of the size of the firm as a proxy for quality in the absence of such a regulation. Uh,
1: well, this story suggests that in fact all firms would have it. Ins- so the, yeah. this particular story, right? sort of tell is is that well given that advertising is potentially deceptive right you know yeah. um then well that, that basically it's it's like the quality of advertising as a whole it's truthfulness is kind of is is a public good right and it'll be mm-hmm. undersupplied right because you know if 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 one firm sort of starts you know, says, well, it is a little bit less than truthful about its advertising, right? Well, then that sort of diminishes the credibility of all advertising, right? That's sort of the idea. And so advertising, if it's all a bunch of lies, I guess here's the the simple way of explaining it, right? If it's all (laughs) a bunch of lies, then basically um, nobody will ever believe any advertising. (laughs) Right, okay, right. Uh, And so having these truth in advertising laws is a way of shoring up confidence in advertising. Right, I think that is that's I think a way of a better way of explaining this this hypothesis. Okay.
0: Right. And so, so you you know in some sense you take a, a inferior good yes uh, advertising and make it better for 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 the entire society so to speak.
1: Yes, exactly. Well, so so the the idea is that by by um, by regulating the quality of advertising advertising the claims made in advertising become more credible absolutely yeah. okay that's right um so the what we the way we tried to test these hypotheses was to basically look at the volume of advertising that was actually in newspapers and magazines which were at this time still the principal source of advertising right yeah. uh, radio was you know it was somewhat later and uh, and of course television well after this period okay mm-hmm. um and Basically, the two hypotheses basically have, 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 have differing proje- uh, predictions about what should happen to the volume of advertising, right? If in mm-hmm. fact, uh, it's this anti-competitive, if, if this regulation is meant to benefit a few companies at the expense of every, you know, and um, to reduce, to make, if, if, if the goal of it is to reduce access to advertising, right? Which is the sort mm-hmm. of special interest story. Then you'd expect that with the introduction of these laws, the volume of advertising would decline. Right. Right. Um, in contrast, if it was the point of the laws was to actually improve the credibility, right, then we would expect the volume of advertising to increase. Right? Yeah. And that's actually yeah. what we observe, right, is that in fact there's adjusting for sort of market size of each state as a state introduces one of these laws, the volume of advertising went up, right? which we think is more consistent with the story of advertising improving these, these regulations improving advertising's credibility than it actually serving as an anti-competitive device.
0: Um I I know that this this data might be difficult to get, but I wondered is there some sort of a relationship between the price of the firm and the volume of advertising that, that was Well
1: possible? I you've got to imagine larger firms of course did a lot more advertising. <laughs> yeah. That that's yeah. certainly true. Yes, you know. Um, the I mean I think the, the clean if you wanted to think about well what would be a a cleaner test of this hypothesis, right? would probably be to look at the price of advertising space, right? Um, So if advertising, in fact, became more valuable as a result of its credibility improving, then, in fact, its price should go up, right? Okay, Uh, It should become, you know, because it's more valuable, okay? Um, However, we don't observe that kind of data, right, of of what what they were charging for advertising space. What What we can observe is volumes of advertising.
0: Right, right. And so so you, your conclusion here is that the, the, the advertising regulation mm-hmm. um, seemed to have done uh, a benefit yes, uh, to society, right? Uh, essentially, it allowed uh, the quality of adver- advertising to increase yes. and it allowed firms of all sizes yes. to advertise. That's right.
1: That, that's sort of our story, is that this has helped making a market the market for advertising work more efficiently in that way, right? By sort of providing some basic policing of advertising uh, uh, claims, right? It basically allowed advertising to be more credible and it allowed this market to work better,
0: right? Right, right. You have another idea here, another paper, Mark, Effects of Occupational Licensing Laws on Minorities. Ah, yes, yes. Sort of a similar question. So, in the paper investigates the effect of occupation licensing regulation on the representation of minority workers in a range of skilled and semi skilled occupations. Yes. Um, so, again, you know, um, there, there are some suggestions that these, these licensing laws yes. uh, basically give advantages to uh, the status quo, the incumbent. Yes and uh, increases uh, entry barriers for, for new entrants, right? right? So, so, so what do you find here? Well,
1: so this is a classic question in the, the literature on occupational licensing, right? Essentially, you know, is, is, the, is licensing a, a way of reducing competition, right? And sort of increasing incomes of the licensed practitioners, right? Or is licensing provide information about quality? right that's sort of the the central question in a lot of the occupational licensing literature is, is it purely an entry restriction right or does it actually uh provide some method of quality assurance okay um so during this period so again as you as you i think you're discovering like a lot of this work is about a lot that i've done is about sort of the, the origins of these regulations in in this sort of late 19th early 20th century right and so during this time not only were states introducing laws about advertising, right, and food and so forth, but they were also introducing laws that began to regulate different occupations. Right? So you have this sort of scattered adoption of licensing laws across states over time in the late decades of the 19th century up through the middle of the 20th century. Okay. Um, right. And so it is, it's widely believed that these laws were anti-competitive, right? that they reduced competition, right? Okay. And it's also believed, and, and I think it's true in some instances, that these laws were also used to keep out certain demographic groups, right? So that licensing of certain occupations was not so much maybe a way of, of uh, assuring people of quality, but was more about reducing competition and keeping out blacks and women and so on and so forth. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's sort of the, the, the sort of the received wisdom. And again, I think it is true in many instances that regular, that licensing has served that kind of function. OK, um, however, what we wanted to do is we wanted to look across a sort of a broader range of occupations um, that represented a reasonably large percentage of the licensed workforce during this time. OK, I think we looked at I don't know eight or nine occupations. I can't remember how many in total. Okay. Um, and what we wanted to do is we wanted to see if these licenses had had a disproportionate impact on female workers and black. Right. So were they harmed or they hurt by the introduction of these licensing laws over time? Right? And we find kind of an interesting, sort of a nuanced story here. Right? So in certain occupations where essentially it's not obvious that you would need a license to signal quality, right? in, in those occupations, I think it's probably, it's probably safe to say that these regulations either had very little effect because maybe they just weren't very effective, okay? okay. Uh, they, th- 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 at this time, they weren't very binding, perhaps, right? Or they may have actually disadvantaged women and minorities, okay? So, for instance, mm-hmm. in the barbering profession, right? Barbering is an occupation that's that's licensed, right? But it's actually unclear that there's a lot of need for licensing, right? It's pretty easy to figure out who's a good barber, <laughs> right? It's it's not it's not it, you know the market it, can sort that out pretty uh, easily.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly.
1: You can quickly see if you've if, got if a, you bad get a bad haircut. You just don't go back, right? And yeah. I think that, you know, that in reputation <laughs> is enough to ensure that, you know, good barbers get rewarded and bad barbers don't, okay? Um, and, and in those occupations, there's certainly no benefit to minorities and women, right? Well, of course, back then, it, it was all men who were barbers, right? Um, and in fact, we have, there's some evidence that blacks were harmed by these laws, okay, in those occupations. However, in other occupations where they were more skilled involved, right? So in higher skilled occupations, like uh, I think we have, you know, like doctors or maybe plumbers or pharmacists. I think those were some of the ones we looked at. What we found was that there is actually some evidence there that women and minorities may have actually been helped by those licenses, right? That they may have actually allowed them to enter occupations which they would normally have been kept out of, right? And so the story here mm-hmm. is perhaps that what's going on is in, in, in many of these services, right, for which there's fairly high skill, there, there might have at this time been what we call statistical discrimination, right? This sort of idea that, well, I'm not going to go to, let's say during this time, you might not go to a female doctor, right? Because people just didn't think that women could do it, okay? That was, might've been a, a prevalent view at that time, okay? <laughs> and so what a license allowed a woman or a, a black person it is time to do is to signal that they actually could op, could op, they, that they were going to be qualified to um, to to operate in these occupations right and so we think that in these higher skilled occupations the story is is somewhat different because here this was an opportunity for licensing to actually serve as a signal of quality that allowed these minority groups and women to prove their mettle
0: yeah, so 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 I wonder, Mark. So the, the higher skilled occupations, the earning power is yes. higher, and so uh, you know the negative story for the negative story has to be valid. Uh, the entrants have to have some sort of capital constraint, but if your if your earning power right. is higher, uh, presumably you know you can borrow and you can you can get license. Yes. Um, whereas the other, the, the, the haircutting um, profession, the earning, earnings power is lower. Yes. You you do have that problem. Is, is that the way to think about it? Or
1: we don't directly connect this with information about um, the income of the professionals, right? So during this time, uh, they, they weren't collecting data on wages or anything of that sort, right? So um, I can't tell you precisely what the empirical relationship would have been. In this period, right? um, however, yes, I, I think in a sense, right? Certain certain occupations, of course, are good are higher income occupations, in part because they are licensed, right? Because there, there is protected entry, yeah. right? Um, and so one story that is told is that, well, the reason that you, you you need these licenses is because essentially by keeping the earning power high, and I'm not saying that this is empirically true, it's just one story that is told, but right? yeah, is yeah. but that by, by restricting entry right, you're facilitating the formation, you're giving these guys an incentive to form very specific human capital, right? Exactly, because if I, so I know that when I, you know, when I'm in that occupation, there, uh, my wages are not gonna be competed away, and so that gives me an incentive to a- accumulate the skills, right, that are necessary to, to operate in those occupations, right, so that, that is sometimes a story foretold for why we might want licensing, right? Um, the licensing literature is is big, and, and it's, of course, licensing is empirically, a, a, today, it's, a, it's, it's pretty widespread, right? Something between uh, 20 to 30 percent of U.S. workers are subject to a license, right? And it's probably gone too far, I think, right? Uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of occupations where you have to have a license, where it's really unclear why you need one, right? Um, uh, and I think a lot of it is, is simply just some effort to reduce competition. Um, so this sort of informational story, I think, is, is an important one and it's, it's relevant. And I think there are still many instances where it allows people to signal quality, but it's certainly not the only one, nor I would, th- nor do I think it's the predominant story for why we have licensing.
0: Yeah, I, I wondered, Mark, that the, the most of the licensing that we see is sort of binary in the sense that you cannot practice without the yes. license. Having the license doesn't really say anything about the quality of services delivered. It, it's almost like, <laughs> you know, yeah, it could it well, play. It's right? an easy
1: right. It, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's not that you know. You might have been able. Maybe you had to pass an exam at some point, right? You know, that was was involved, perhaps, right? And, you know, but but then beyond that, yeah. well, of course, to maintain the license, sometimes you have to do some continuing education, right? So. Physicians and, and and so forth are, are required to do a certain amount of continuing ed right every year to maintain their licenses. So there's a little bit of that. Right. But no, I agree with you. It doesn't it's not really uh, a very strong signal of ongoing quality. <laughs> yes. Right. Right.
0: And so so you would argue that um, maybe, you know, again, from a policy perspective, you have to really look at licensing requirements by profession. Yes and really understand why it exists and what the benefits and Absolutely. costs are. right?
1: I mean, I think, I think there yeah. are, are vast numbers of occupations that probably, you know, market forces work very well in sorting out who's good and not, right? Okay, the, the informational requirements of trying to figure out who's, who's gonna be a quack and who's not is are, are, are pretty low. And so you would think that, uh, you know, you really don't need the licenses, right? If you're going to have licensing then the question is well is that really the way you want to go about it right so licensing is 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 probably the one is the strictest kind of occupational regulation and that basically it says you cannot operate without a license right but there in are many industries where you can kind of go for sort of a, a sort of a weaker standard like certification right where you know you can have organizations that certify certain people for doing certain sort of work uh, but you can operate in that field without necessarily having the certification right and that's a more Pro-competitive kind of it provides the information, but it doesn't could preclude it, uh,
0: preclude competition. Yeah, I, so like you like you mentioned, if the intent is to uh, is to assess quality, yes. then you know you you have to really think about you know sort of sequential exams, maybe publishing sure. scores yes. in those. Ex- and saying yes, things like that,
1: right? Absolutely, right. right? Uh, but that doesn't generally happen, right? I think, like, you know, once people, once right. doctors pass their exams and they move on and they don't write those exams ever again, right? There's, you know, they, they take these continuing <laughs> education courses, but, you know, they're not too demanding of them. And I don't think they get, you know, really tested every every now and then, right? Then, essentially, they're requiring on their reputation with their peers, right? To basically, uh, pull, that's yeah. what keeps them up, right? In some ways, right? Um, so it's, it's, Uh, It is kind of a, it's a very crude mechanism for trying to assure quality. There's no question about that.
0: Mm. Yeah. I also look at, you know, think about this and it's sort of a matrix. So there is an earnings power question. There is also a complexity question, which is if the customer is unable to really um, assess quality because the product or service delivered is so complex. Uh then there is a need for some sort of that's gatekeeping right. there.
1: Exactly. Right. That's that I think is, is is very much the case, right? And and that's I think where licensing or some kind of regulation has potentially a very productive role, right? Where I don't yeah. you know, if I, I don't know when I go to the dentist, I'm not sure what you know, he tells me that I need this done <laughs> or he needs I need to, to have a filling or whatever. Yeah. How would I know? Right? There's no easy way for me to be able to um to test that, right? You know, and so yeah. there, some kind of assurance is is very very useful, absolutely.
0: Right. Yeah. So so I want to finish up with um, another paper you have, another very interesting paper. Did early twentieth century alcohol <laughs> prohibition yes affect affect yes. mortality? And so so this is prohibition in the nineteen hundreds, nineteen hundred to nineteen twenty. And you're asking, was that a good thing?
1: So uh, so what do you you find? Basically, we're asking the question of, well, did it actually reduce the incidence of diseases that might have been related to uh, excessive alcohol consumption? Um, So the United States in the 19th century was awash with drink, right? Um, Prohibition didn't (laughs) arise by accident. right? It arose as, as a social force because there was a serious problem of heavy, heavy drinking in certain parts, certain communities of the United States, I think, you know, they're settled by Northern Europeans who were often quite prone to alcoholism, okay? It was a social menace, you know, in, in, and it continues, of course, to be in, in, in some way, okay? Um, and so what we wanted to look at is, well, did these, you know, so prohibition, of course, it wasn't, when we think of prohibition in, in, in popular context, we normally just think of the, you know, the, the, the prohibition at the national level that occurred in 19... 19, 19, 20, right the sort of the national level prohibition right? but but in fact it was preceded by state level prohibition uh, and even before that co- prohibition at the county level okay um, yeah. and so what we wanted to do is we wanted to look at a wide range of health outcomes and, and basically mortality counts essentially okay um, mm-hmm. that might be plausibly related to excessive alcohol consumption okay, okay. and we wanted to see if these this gradual introduction of prohibition first at the level of counties and then at the level of states right had any effect on reducing the incidence of certain types of illnesses like cirrhosis and so forth, okay things that are related to uh, alcohol consumption and and even things like of course accidents and whatnot, right because of course you know when you're drunk, you can right. also you know. You can kill yourself, right, by accident, or, or maybe you're more likely to commit suicide or something along those lines. Okay, um, yeah. and so a lot of the contribution of this paper is somewhat methodological in that we're not the first people to sort of look at this. Okay, um, other scholars have also looked at the effect of state-level prohibitions on on um, certain health outcomes. Okay, but we wanted to contribute by a looking at a Larger number of outcomes than had been previously looked previously examined, okay, <laughs> and also trying to um, improve the coding of prohibition by taking account of this sort of uh, county level prohibition and also to get the timing of the state level prohibition correct because some some previous studies had miscoded that okay and so what we found is if you do it as, as we have um, that we find some evidence that in fact uh, prohibition was good in the sense that it, uh, that it, it at least in terms of reducing the incidence of certain types of illnesses. Okay, so there are fewer deaths due to, um, I think, certain liver diseases. Right, we find fewer deaths due to um, accidents and suicides and stuff like that. Okay, um, and that uh, that you know there was something to it. Right, these these laws were not just you know that, there's again there's a widespread uh, conception in the popular culture that prohibition just didn't work. Okay. Um, and certainly it had yeah. a lot of costs, but we 're not saying that it was ultimately a good idea on a cost benefit sense right We just want to know if did it generate any of the benefits that it was supposed to and 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 what we find is well, it seems to have right uh, that it, it did reduce deaths due to certain types of diseases that were related to alcohol
0: hmm. Uh, but uh, if I understand correctly, Mark, uh, so could, could you compute sort of the total cost of the system? Oh, you, the
1: costs it? of prohibition?
0: Yeah, so, so you know, I, I don't know if this is the right way to look at it, but prohibition would have um, decreased economic activity from, you know, just consumption well, So it's like, and no, production. We to
1: be, so we don't actually estimate the costs of prohibition. And I think, you know, so the costs of prohibition are principally in terms of the enforcement, right, uh, of it, right, um, and maybe you know, the crime that might have resulted as a result of it right? okay uh, because of course there was a fair bit of uh, evasion right as we know um, organized crime in West, right, right. may um, have been related to that uh, but also of course simply the lost pleasure right from you know forcing you know taking drink away from people right okay um, in terms of the economic costs well I think it's you know in terms of like the, you know, the reduction, it's true there would have been less alcohol production, but of course a lot of that production would have been reallocated somewhere else, right? Into some other industry. Um, but no, no, we, we don't we don't make an effort to do that. That would be another endeavor, right? We're just trying to see if it had, had some effect on the mortality numbers. And it and it, it appears to have done right. so, right?
0: Both, both mortality yes, and diseases, sounds
1: like, like right? To be clear, I guess. So there's, there was fewer okay. deaths associated with alcohol related causes okay that's right and and it was an you know if you, if it uh, was uh, an economically significant amount so in the sense that you know we, we tried right. to sort of estimate using you know using sort of the value of statistical life how much was it worth in some ways and and it actually was not not totally trivial in terms of its in terms of its benefits but of course there were a lot of costs i, I, I certainly wouldn't want to ignore those
0: yeah, and I also wondered, Mark, you know, whether there is some sort of substitution effect. So, you know, again, the the place I grew mm-hmm. up in in South India uh had this problem just very recently and they had a prohibition and what they found was that there is a substitution to yes. other drugs. Well, no, uh, from all and that turned yes. out to be a bigger well, that's, problem.
1: That's right. I mean that that's but always kind of a <laughs> potentially a problem, right, with, with uh, you know, if people are going to get their fix yep. one way or the other in some ways, right? Um, in this context, um, we don't actually observe that, right? There, it doesn't appear to have shifted mortality towards other causes, okay? So if you, you know, what's what's interesting is is that what we find is that prohibition seems to have reduced mortality due to alcohol-related diseases, okay? But it didn't affect yeah. the mortality yeah. rates due to anything else, okay? That's, we, we sort of do that as a falsification test, right? Uh, because what we would worry about is that, yeah. well, imagine that places that had prohibition were also places where just health, Im- health outcomes were improving anyway, okay? Uh, then we would be misattributing, yeah. you know, um, these uh, prohibition, uh, we, would be, we would be, you know, there'd be a confounding variable, right, in that sense. We, we, we don't want right. to attribute these declines to prohibition if they were in fact due to other causes. Uh, but what's interesting is we don't yeah. find decline in deaths due to any any other cause, right? It doesn't affect other mortality rates in either direction, okay? It doesn't increase them or reduce them.
0: So One thing I was thinking about, Mark, is that there is, you know, 1900 to 1920 seems like a fairly short period of time. Um, alcohol use related mortality takes some time to show up. So did you, did you
1: look at a lag between oh. and the actual mortality? No, no, we didn't. Um, I mean, of course, yes, some of these diseases would, would take a long time to sort of affect you know, people. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Um, so I think, no, that would be a subject for future study. I mean, I think it's that that truth, the problem with looking at the lags, right, is that, of course, people move around right, yeah, during that time right. time, right? And so it's very difficult to trace you know, any individual's exposure to prohibition at one period with yeah. their health outcomes many years later, right? Um, so while that might be something that we ultimately you would like to do, uh, that is not something we were able to do. Right.
0: No. So, so in conclusion, Mark, you know um, you you have done a lot of work in this area of regulation. If I understand this correctly, there are a lot of you know sort of misconception of the origin of of regulatory um, uh, regulatory laws and the effects on the population, but in general. Um, you 're finding that much of the regulations that you looked at actually had a, a positive effect uh, well,
1: sorry, right? i think yes that that certainly you, you know one might might draw that inference from this body of work right i mean you've to put in a larger perspective right i, I mean, I was sort of interested in, um, what sort of motivated me to do a lot of these studies right so I, i'm i 'm very interested in the origins of the American regulatory state right during this early 20th century period right and and certainly it is certainly among economists it's widely believed that regulation mostly is a reflection of special interests right who who want to have regulation to uh, advantage themselves right to you know at the expense of their competitors that regulation is inefficient in that in that way um, and uh, that is, that's sort of a, the received wisdom in, in, in mid, among many economists about the origins of the regulatory state. Yeah. Um, and I think my, my work sort of points out that, well, that may be true for some regulations. I, again, I, you know, this is, there's a lot of regulations that I haven't looked at, right? Yeah. Um, but there are certain re- other regulations that were arising during this time that I think were basically a response to asymmetric information problems that were arising in an increasingly complex society. Right? <laughs> Uh, That, yes, I think that during this period, right, that when exchange was increasingly impersonal, where products were increasingly complicated, right, where people were living in very urban environments, and where you didn't really know who was making your stuff, right, and producing (laughs) your foods and so on and so forth, right, that there was a lot of uncertainty about things like product quality, okay, and that regulation may have played a productive role in facilitating the expansion of markets during this time when it was not easy for people to determine whether or not products were safe or not safe.
0: Okay. Yeah, one um, complication um, of course uh, is is the regulator himself or herself. Yes. So- the question is are they getting the regul so uh, assuming that the the intent to regulate was the right one mm-hmm. there still remains to be a question of the you know the, the design of the regulation if they got that right yes. right
1: and, and ultimately
0: the more and more problematic I think as we go forward because things as you say are getting more complex
1: yes well well that's right and and I think you know the, many of these regulations sort of outlive their purpose right. Um, yeah. You know we, we think about all of the ways we now have to figure out some quality of things right We have a lot more private mechanisms right for signaling quality than we did back then right um if you want to figure out what restaurant to eat at, you don't need a regulator right you go to Yelp or whatever right <laughs> you know you have the internet you have uh, information is 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 a lot more easily available right about many of these things right um and so whether or not some of these regulations are still needed is is an open question. Or particularly whether and whether they need to take the particular form that they do. Right. Um, additionally, yes. Uh, over time, these regulations get, you know, they they calcify and, and their need changes and 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 uh, and they become captured by other interests. Mm. Right? I mean, I think the you know the origins of the FDA, as I I see it, are very. But I think probably mostly fairly good, right? I think my story is that it was helping here making markets work and so on and so forth, right? Um, yeah. However, as we've seen in the last year, the FDA today is extremely clumsy, right? Yeah. right? It's been very, very slow to, you know, approve testing and, you know, and so on and so forth, right? I think a lot of the progress against this pandemic, right, has been impeded by a lot of this regulation, right? And so yeah. how did we get from regulation being good to regulation being bad in this case, right? And I think there we have to sort of, then this sort of more dynamic approach becomes very, very uh, instructive, right? Because then it will allow us to sort of try to identify these turning points, right? In in which point, but how how different interest groups, you know, how how do we go from one regime to another? And why is this regime that we currently have not working very well for us anymore?
0: Right, right. Yeah, so, so looking at it, you know, sort of a continuous fashion, there maybe you know some regulations may require some sort of an expiry date
1: <laughs> yes. uh,
0: for revaluation, re- you know, things like that, right? Well, that's
1: that's right, lacking. right? Because of course they very very seldom go away, right? I mean, generally, the groups that benefit from them I'll manage to keep them there, right? And, <laughs> and 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 most people don't know about it anymore. Right? It, it becomes very a specialized industry of itself, right? To try to figure out. What, how all of these rules work. Right? Hmm. Um, I think most people had no idea how difficult it would be to get a coronavirus test out to the market, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> and all the thicket of FDA rules and so on and so forth that you would have to, and, and or, or that the FDA would be so conservative, right? In this way, right? right. I mean, I, I think historical understanding helps us understand this, right? The FDA's reputation today is as the guardian of right? You know, of the public safety and so forth, right? The right. The, the, the 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 regime the, of extensive pre-market testing and approval, I think, is the source of people's confidence in the FDA, okay? <laughs> um, and so, therefore, not surprisingly, they've become very, very, very cautious, right? About approving new drugs and approving new tests and so on and so forth, right? And they set this extremely high scientific standard, which, well, maybe, oh, okay- which, which may be okay if you're not in the middle of a pandemic, although even <laughs> there, it, it, it may be still too high, okay? Yeah. Uh, but it's certainly not, if you, if you need a more flexible uh, sort of response, then it's simply a straight jacket.
0: Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Mark. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Well, thank you, Gil. It's been fun. Thank you.